Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Martin Furster of the University of Hamburg. His paper was entitled, So Poor, But Yet So Rich, Jesuit Finances in Restoration Ireland. So we have already heard in the earlier presentations that uh, uh, Catholicism in Ireland, as well as in England, was uh, in some some ways uh, desperate to present itself as, uh, um, well, subject to martyrdom and uh, was not actually uh, that... Uh, subjected to it, and we have uh, in the second presentation heard about um, the uh, request to Rome for financial aid for imprisoned and impoverished uh, Irish uh, Catholic priests. So maybe this third presentation will bring the both aspects a bit together. The occupation with Catholic schools in Ireland in the Restoration period, in my dissertation, frequently brought up the question of who paid for all this. Catholic teachers in schools could be found throughout all Ireland, and especially the Jesuit institutions were quite famous for the number of students, the boarding houses, the libraries, even their medical centres. At the same time, most of all the Jesuits kept complaining to Rome about the hunger they suffered, the miserable conditions in which they were forced to subsist, and the general poverty of the Irish Catholics. But the mission superiors considered themselves as left alone, despite their complaints. As a consequence, they started a kind of propaganda campaign since the mid-1660s in which they portrayed the Irish mission as similarly exotic and high potential as the Asian missions to China and Japan. The former Jesuit and Archbishop of Dublin, Peter Talbot, commented in 1666 how great the success of the Irish Jesuits in Ireland, Scotland and England could be if they were just equally supported from Rome as Asia, Africa or India. During the same period, the Litera Anwe repeatedly informed about the healing miracles performed in Ireland due to the intervention of St. Saviour, the well-known pioneer of the Eastern missions. Such stories clearly expressed that the Jesuit saint had now turned his attention to a missionary territory as distant from Rome in questions of moral, money and manpower as the areas of his previous dedication. Thus, the Litera Anwe were eager to characterize Ireland as a country far away from European Catholicism, with a suppressed and impoverished Catholic minority, but at the same time with vast numbers of heathens waiting for the word of God. The missionaries in this country were few and poor, without sufficient supply, and consequently unable to support themselves in form of rents, investments, and private donations. If they were not helped by the Catholics of Europe, the mission might fail and its members perish without ever someone knowing about their lamentable fate. The literary annuaire, however, were official documents not only of objective information, but also as a means of advertising, publicity and promotion, outlining the successes, needs and potentials of the missions they reported about. The private correspondences of the mission of the mission superiors and the Roman headquarters of the Restoration period show the economic reality of the Irish Jesuits in a different light. Despite the persecutions by the Protestant government, the impoverishment of the local population, and the supposed destruction of most Catholic networks under Cromwell, the Irish Jesuit mission consisted of a number of brothers well-connected throughout most Western European countries, who disposed of considerable amounts of money from different donations, which they more or less successfully invested in foreign countries as far as Japan. The fact that little of these resources were ever applied for the good of the mission in Ireland itself was not based on Ireland being an exotic, remote, and heretic country, but on internal divisions and disputes that reached back to Confederate times and were not solved, if ever, until the end of the century. 
Generally, Jesuit residences lived off three major, source, major income sources. Rents from real estates, interest from money loaned to private individuals, as well as other Jesuit economic enterprises and investments, and finally donations from lay supporters of the order. Theoretically, all of these three categories can be traced with a Jesuit mission from the end of the Commonwealth to the accession of James II, with three outstanding cases that dominated more than anything the contemporary correspondences. During Rinuccini's time in Ireland and the failed Confederate attack on Dublin in 1646, the former mission superior Robert Nugent had lent the considerable sum of £800, the inheritance of the Dowager Countess of Kildare, given to the mission together with Kilkey Castle, to the nuncio together with a further £220 for other Confederate office holders. Soon after the breakdown of the attack, however, the relations between the Jesuits and Rinuccini worsened, ending up with a papal envoy flying from Ireland without ever repaying the loan. But if Rinuccini thought his flight might save him from the, financial interest between, uh, from the financial interest of the Irish Jesuits in such chaotic times, he was mistaken. Despite the intervention of the Order General Carafa, who had little interest in further dispute with the Archbishop of Fermo, and asked the Irish brothers for moderation, they employed the assistance of Aquitaine, as well as German supporters within the Order, to promote their demands in Rome. Still, after the collapse of the Confederate cause, the missionaries decided in 1650 to send John Young as a personal envoy to Rinuccini, asking for the mission or otherwise pursuing a legal cause against him with the papal courts. Notwithstanding their, further, their efforts, further delay seemed to finally end their hopes for recovery when the debtor died in December 1653. The tenacity of the Irish Jesuits and their interconnectedness throughout Europe in economic terms, however, is underlined by the fact that the efforts to regain at least some of the money were never completely dropped. Until 1663, an Irish Jesuit sent to Spain searched for remains of the money or anyone involved able to compensate the mission for its loss. And eventually, in 1693, Pope Innocent X recognized parts of the debts as originated by Rinuccini in the name of the Holy See, thus accepting to refund the mission with 1,318 scudi, nearly a third of the ones 4,080 scudi lost in Confederate times. Of course, by then... The time had long passed when the members of the mission were in desperate need for funds in order to restore their residences returning to Ireland after the Cromwellian exile. For this immediate task, they required other sources of income. In the mid-1650s, they had received a donation of 3,000 ducats from Thomas Walsh, Archbishop of Cashel. Originally, this money was to be invested for the furthering of the Catholic faith in Cashel itself and Walsh's native town, Waterford, but with Walsh and the Irish Jesuits in exile on the continent, it was there where the money was invested, until the political circumstances permitted a return of the missionaries. Even more than the Rinuccini case, the ways of the Cashel donation document the international networks of the Irish Jesuits and their intentions to participate in a growing global market economy that was completely contrary to their self-depiction as a remote and impoverished mission. While the Order General Nicol charged the rector of the Irish College of Seville, Malone, with the investment of the money, two other Irish Jesuits in Spanish exile, Peter White and William Salinger, claimed its power of disposition. Apparently, it was White who actually received the money in Cadiz, investing it throughout Spain. If he knew about the different orders from the Roman headquarter, cannot be judged, but soon afterwards, a third Irish Jesuit exile, Ignatius Lombard, in Madrid, was sent to collect the money from White's investments, in which he partly succeeded, concentrating them again in a Japan trading investment through a Lisbon agent. Although General Nickel complained about such transactions as being ineffective and too costly, they turned out quite lucrative for the Irish Jesuits. When the money was finally retransferred to Ireland in 1661, the 3,000 ducat donation from 1656 had increased by another 1,000 ducats. The business about the cashier money impressively shows how Irish Jesuit economy stretched through Western Europe even to Asia with some success, while most of the mission members were still scattered in places of exile. 
It was exactly this missionary substructure that provided them with a nearly unparalleled network combined with the already existing continental colleges under Jesuit administration and an even greater number of Irish clerics laboring outside their home country. At the same time, it becomes clear that the organization of so disparate a community was extremely difficult, creating as many problems as offering possibilities. While the money would have been needed at hand by the late 1650s, it required until late 1661 when the money was finally recollected and brought over to Ireland after heavy miscommunication by all those involved not knowing exactly what the others were doing. Such independent and uncoordinated proceeding was contrary to the order's chain of commands and originated serious problems for the economic foundation of the mission once it was re-established in Ireland after the restoration. In how far the desire for independent investment in financial proceedings weakened the Irish mission can be demonstrated along two examples, one internal and one external. While the Cashel episode ended with General Oliver demanding of the Irish Jesuits to restrict their investments to secure business at home in future, the missionaries insisted on further involvement on the continent. Apparently, their fear for confiscation and the risk of exploitation through trading partners who knew of their weak political position was too high, while the good experiences in Spain and Portugal seemed to show an easier and safer way of earning money. However, instead of following the order general's advice and investing the money through local, local order members on the continent, the headstrong Irish insisted for years on sending their own procurators to the important trading places of Western Europe. In 1666, Oliva referred to the fact that a permanent procurator in Madrid cost the mission 300 scudi a year, additional to him not being active on the mission, thus reducing the anyhow small group of Irish missionaries. And a procurator in Madrid was not all the mission superiors aimed at. In 1673, at the height of Protestant tolerance policy in Ireland, Superior Stephen Rice even sent three further procurators to Paris, Brussels and London, a project that was vehemently refused by Oliva, not without reason, who, with, not without reason, outlined that the communities of Irish exiles in these places were already so large that sending a costly Irish Jesuit there seemed to ridicule the situation of the Irish Catholics. With the following waves of persecution, these expensive enterprises were apparently abandoned and Rice came up with a new idea of procuring income. In compliance with Oliva's reference to the Irish clerics in exile, he obtained the general's permission to have the Irish Jesuits not participating on the mission but residing on the continent to collect money for their native country. Oliva even issued a special permit for them to travel in order to increase their collection radius, but only small was the result. The second example of internal financial management difficulties with it was certainly the episode that most preoccupied the Irish missionaries as well as the Roman headquarters during the Restoration period. Similar to the case of the cashier donation, it started with a lucky chance for the Jesuits, but turned out to tear apart the small missionary community to ruin the mission's relation to the Order General in Rome and to endanger the economic survival of much of the mission instead of improving it. In 1663, the Irish Jesuit Ignatius Goch inherited as a second son the considerable fortune of his family. Although the mission was at that time in desperate need of funding to reconsolidate its Irish operations, the inheritance met with two serious difficulties. First of all, Goch, as member of the order, was not entitled to property, and the order general in Rome made it very clear that Goch inheriting the money uh, while remaining in the order was not an option. On the other hand, to claim the inheritance as a Jesuit was a great risk, especially in the 1663 ambience of the land question and the reviving Protestant fear of Catholic conspiracies. The persons involved agreed on the strategy that Goch should be allowed to claim the inheritance, assuring to donate everything to the mission once he successfully received it. However, this, however, his being a Jesuit remained no secret for long, and only the goodwill or ignorance of the responsible Judge Rainsford eventually secured safe transfer of the property without greater public scandal, something all Jesuits involved were most eager to avoid. 
But the past problems and the danger of another lawsuit affirmed the mission superior in his desire to sell the real estates belonging to the inheritance as soon as possible, thus to reinvest the cash money in safer places somewhere in Europe, without the danger of confiscation. He commissioned the procurator John Talbot with a sale, emphasizing that a reliable buyer had to be found and therefore accepting that no normal market price could be hoped for. In any way, it seemed most likely that Gough's brother-in-law, George Usher, should buy the estates. He was not only the husband of Ignatius' sister, but also brother to the Irish Jesuit John Usher, who made him completely trustworthy. Scandal arose when Talbot decided instead to sell everything to his own brother-in-law for the cheap price of 5,000 florins. Apart from the bad blood this transaction caused among the Irish missionaries, it documented the precarious economic and political situation the Jesuits remained in, as still by the following year, the superior had to admit that he had neither a contract about the transaction nor had he received any of the money yet. The ensuing conflict originated from three contradictory stakeholders that generally dominated Irish Jesuit politics. While the mission officials were primarily in desperate need of money and therefore willing to deal with the circumstances as they were, the members as individuals also acted in the interest groups of their own families or family networks. Especially after the devastating outcome of the Confederate Wars and the Cromwellian occupation, they were naturally inclined to secure as much property for their part as they could. This clientele policy on the other side was completely incompatible with the order's demands from Rome to stay out of such profane business. The whole economic proceedings of the Irish mission thus have to be viewed in the tangents evolving around these three interest groups. In the case of Gough, General Oliva threatened him with dismissal from the order if he caused any further scandal, while he promised that a foreign commissary would look into the matter to clarify if the transaction was done correctly. The mission superior, on the other hand, promised to lay aside some of the money to provide for Gough's sister since the property did not remain in the Gough family. This was certainly unconventional, but documents the pragmatism in order to get most of the money as soon as possible with the least public scandal. But while these accommodations were designed to satisfy all participants in some way, they were only, they were only the starting point for further unrest among the Irish brothers. Until 1674, Ignatius Gough petitioned to, uh, petitioned to Rome in order to gain control over at least that part of the money which would provide for his sister, a desire which could impossibly be granted by the Order General. Instead, the foreign commissary who looked into the transactions recommended to Oliva and the mission superior that Gough should be involved in the decision of how to spend the money. Quite naturally, Gough belonged to the influential, influential group of Dublin Jesuits, who were of the opinion that the promotion and expansion of the Dublin residents were essential for the Irish mission in general. In this, they got into conflict with the other members. Most of all, the mission superiors Burke and Rice, who pointed out that the most prosperous and successful Jesuit residences existed outside of Dublin, where the impact of Protestant and government prosecution was usually less severe. Additionally, this faction among the Irish Jesuits insisted on the necessity to use great parts of the available financial resources for the erection of a continental safe house that could be used as place of exile, retirement and higher education. By 1673, Oliva and Rice had agreed on an Irish residence in the Aquitaine province near Poitiers, and only the money was needed to pay for already accumulated bills. In this situation, the Dublin party refused to obey its superior and denied the payment out of the Gough inheritance. The whole enterprise seemed at an end. In September 1674, the Irish commissioner in Paris, Ignatius Brown, already lacked a considerable sum of £800. The unnerved Oliva rode to Dublin demanding immediate obedience to Rice's superiorship, but instead the Dublin faction answered with severe accusations against Rice himself. The superior would take bribe money from Irish families 
who wanted their sons to be accepted into the Jesuit order, an accusation of unprecedented gravity. Immediately, Oliva sent another commissary to look into the matter, but until the summer of 1675, no proof against Rice had been found. By then, the differences between the Superior and Dublin had been allayed to some extent, but the patience with and the support of the Irish mission from the, from the Order General was completely gambled away. In July 1675, Oliva wrote to Rice coldly that the commissary was quite contented with the current situation in Ireland, adding that he, however, was not at all satisfied. In conclusion, it can be stated that the self-representation as the poor, remote, and unprotected Irish Jesuit mission was not correct. Of course, the Irish mission, as well as the Irish Catholics of the Restoration period, could not be compared in wealth to their continental or even English counterparts, but they were not without resources either. To the contrary, Irish Jesuits quickly adapted to the new economic circumstances, trying to invest their not inconsiderable wealth in safer Catholic markets, while at the same time presenting themselves to the public via the literary anwar as part of the devastated Irish that needed all possible support to continue their fight against an, over, against an overpowering heretic enemy. My research on Jesuit schools in the Restoration period has shown that the missionary dealings with the Irish Protestants was more than respectful and pragmatic, and quite so was their understanding of the connection between fundraising and propaganda. The international network of Irish Jesuits in exile provided them with an excellent opportunity to partake in the developing global markets with some success that procured the necessary means for the surprisingly quick reorganization of the Irish mission. But at the same time, territorial dispersal of missionaries as well as, as, well as benefactors complicated the efficient application of the accumulated funds. As has been shown, most transactions were delayed through miscommunication and internal conflict of conflicts of interest by years until they finally reached the places they were destined for. By then, the political circumstances had usually already changed. In the case of the Goch inheritance that caused so many disturbances within the mission, much of the money was eventually reserved for the Dublin members who used it to finance the erection of a representative residence. When a few years later, William of Orange occupied the city, these possessions of the Dublin Jesuits were among the first to be confiscated by the new authorities. Instead of being used to prepare for political crises when the time allowed it, the fortune was lost, and the Irish Jesuits were again in the same situation they had been in when Rinocini fled Ireland a few decades before. Thank you very much. Thank you.